Listen up, don't become the kingdom of God serious. This sermon's going to be called The Return of the King. Hello. How is everybody today? Good Sabbath day, isn't it? We're here. We have challenges in life. We don't always get to just leave them at the door, but we are here together, fellowshipping together, and uh, hopefully learning and learning from God and what He wants us to understand. I'm hopeful that what I have for you today is from God and that He wants us to understand, and hopefully you will understand. There are sixes and sevens, because at about quarter to nine this morning, I was like, I wonder who else is taking part in services today, because I didn't have any today, and that's when I realized that I have so many So I'm feeling a little less organized than I, I normally would. Um, the title of my message, obviously, is continuing in this series that I've been doing on the kingdom of God. Maybe I'm jumping to the end because we want the return of the king, don't we? We really want the return of the king. But for some of you, when we say the phrase, the return of the king, what comes to mind? Lord of the Rings. There you go. Brian actually beat Joseph to that. Who's watched Lord of the Rings? And now you're hearing the theme. Right, it's going in your head, right? And you're thinking about what's the name of the king? Aragon? Araborn? Something like that. I'm a Narnian fan myself, so <laughs> I, I do enjoy the Lord of the Rings. And of course, Tolkien and Lewis were pretty good buddies. Uh, and I like to think that Lewis gave him some pointers in this area. The Lord of the Rings. So in our house, as you may have guessed, Joseph is a voracious reader, and he has been just demolishing everything Lord of the Rings recently. Uh, three books, and then two other additional stories, and then maybe The Hobbit. All of that together, right? Four books. Okay. And I think he listens to them in the space of eight hours goes through them. But there's something else that goes along with the story. They write songs. Did you guys know the song? Do you guys know the song of Durin? <laughs> we do in our house. Because when a certain young man has been given the task that he's struggling to really get through, like doing the dishes or some other chore around the house, he plays this song, and I'm going to play a little bit of it here.
sounds like Gregorian chant to our hearts with all of these songs while he's doing the dish. That's just a little fun. The return of the king, while the end result is fun, but the process is not that fun today. We're going to look a little bit at some scriptures today that are not really, uh, well, they're not positive for a certain group of people. And they're, they're challenging to read. It's a little bit of prophecy. Uh, it, we're not going to get really deep into the, the prophecy, but I want us to just be thinking about and setting the stage in our minds for the return of the king. And there's some really important attributes that we need to look for. As we are looking toward the end of the age, which may come, maybe here, and maybe about to start, and maybe in 5,000 years, I don't know. But I kind of feel like it's around the corner. And we maybe feel that way because we see some of the characteristics, some of the things that we read in Scripture happening around this time. And so I just thought it was really important <coughs> to, to identify some things that we can take to heart, keep in our mind, keep in our heart, remember that when the end of the age comes, we're not deceived. Okay? Now, there's certainly a lot of research that you can do. You can go into the prophecies. You can connect them and make charts and timelines. Lots of people find that really interesting to do, and that, that's, that's okay. But some of the most simple elements that will keep us on the straight and narrow, keep us understanding uh, where we are in time and where we are in our relationship with God are actually really not to do with prophecy at all. They're to do with our relationship with the King. So it's very important that we keep that in mind. So the idea of the return of the King is biblical, but it's also throughout culture, isn't it? It's throughout mythology. It's throughout, you know, the modern mythologies that we have from Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, you know, that's my favorite, Aslan, the king, the rightful king, returning and, and liberating the country of Narnia. And then we have, all the way back in mythology, another one that uh, Mark and I are familiar with is King Arthur, right? And Knights of the Round Table. He and I were both one of those knights at one time. Okay. Maybe not. Maybe when we were boys acting out the story. But even in that story, King Arthur, right, there's a line in the, the narrative, in the, in the mythology that says, when Britain needs him the most, King Arthur will return. Right? The return of the king is this monumental moment changes everything. And that's what we are looking for. When Aslan or Arthur or Aragorn or whatever his name is, Aragorn, okay, when he puts the world to right, right, when he defeats the enemy and puts it to right. And I, I love the story in C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you remember the... Um, Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the beaver, right, is tallying the Pevensey 
uh, building premises that Aslan is a fish. He's around. He's, he's the giant and he's building his army. And they're like magically mystified by the, the story, but they don't know who Aslan is. And, and he just seems to tell them this tiny, tiny thing. And in the, the story of Narnia, he's this lion, and Aslan in, I think, Turkish uh, means lion. So C.S. Lewis is, you know, this is the lion's lion. This is the king of beasts. This is the king of kings. And, of course, the whole storyline of Narnia, you get to, I want to say, the Dawn Treader, which is the fourth book, I think, fifth book. Finally, it reveals to the children why he reveals himself to them in the first place in the story of Narnia. It's so that they get to learn his name in the real world. And Lewis, of course, is embedding within the storyline the fiction, the gospel, the truth that Jesus is our king. So I just love that story. So we have all of these stories. We have all these myths. And they all have a taste, a promise, a, a kind of a, a hint of the true king that we're looking to return and set the world right. So what is he setting right? Because if, if something needs to be set right, then, then where are we? Well, if we're in a place that's wrong, right? We're in a place that is not the way it's supposed to be. And we can tell this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And more and more we see that it's not the place that we're supposed to be we're trapped under the oppression of the enemy, the white witch or uh, Mordor, right? Dark Lord, or all of those imagery, and it, and it kind of makes sense. And we know this battle, we're familiar with it. And that's why these stories are so powerful for us. So the world itself is trapped in a tender to the throne. Somebody that wants the throne but doesn't want the real king. We're looking for the real king, the return of the king. So we're ready. We're ready for that sword and key, and for that enemy to be taken down, and for the king to, to take up his, his reign and rule. But of course, the only place we can really understand any of these myths, old or new, is in Scripture, is in the Word of God, because that's where all of these things come from. And in this book, we're given a glimpse, not a lot of detail when you really think about it, but some amazing prophecies and just some fanciful creatures and this lots of interaction, and it doesn't really tell us specifics about what's going to happen. Hence, all the charts get created and the timelines and people analyze it and try and understand. But there are, as I said earlier, some very important things we can take personally to prepare us as we glimpse into the prophecy of the return of the king.
thought it might be useful today for us to remind ourselves what we're looking for and why we are looking for these things, uh, for these, these things that fit. So when you think about Jesus returning and establishing the kingdom of God, what are the first pictures that come to mind? scripture comes to mind is Revelation. Revelation is Revelation 18 and 19 on into 20. And so we're going to jump into these, these chapters here because to me, lots of times, I mean, there's a, there's a total steal from the book of Revelation in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where, you know, um, Gandalf the White now is leading this army and he's kind of coming down this steep mountainside on a white horse, and the, the sunlight or whatever is behind him, and it's just glorified, and it's almost like he's coming out of the sky. Totally, totally painted from Revelation, right? That's what we see here. And so we're going to jump into this, these passages here, and it's going to feel a little jarring because we're jumping into almost like a split screen of the story, taking us rapidly to the conclusion the end of the age, and the end of man's reign on the earth, and the return of the rightful king. So, firstly, let's set the stage a little bit. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, we are pre presented with a powerful city, a great, powerful city that is holding sway over the whole earth. In verse 15 it says, And then he said to me, The waters that you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns that you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So another thing to, the first thing to probably remember as we read all of this imagery is upsetting uh, imagery, really, is that God is in control of all these pieces. He has put these pieces in play, and he's playing them out. He is in control already before he even returns. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Think about great cities of history. Certain cities come to mind. You throw out a city that comes to mind. Great, powerful cities in history. Rome. London. New York? What else? Washington? I mean, there's, there's some really powerful cities in history that, what makes them powerful? Well, they dominated the region that they were in, right? They either dominated the country, dominated the entire region beyond country borders, and some cities, like Rome, 
What do we call that? The eternal city. Called the eternal city. I mean, talk about blasphemy. But that's how it's seen, right? Rome, and, and of course, with the Catholic Church and the Holy See and this eternal city. And yet, it has had a powerful history. It has shaped an entire set of nations of which we are a part. Rome's tradition and impact in the world is alive today in our language, in our culture, in our architecture, in everything. It, it changed the face of the world. The face of the world. And there's other cities. The original Babylon was one of those cities, wasn't it? Powerful city system. Unbelievable wealth for its time, and it influenced and shaped the region and the culture. And of course, London, as Renee mentioned, sat atop of the, the largest empire in world history, and is the region that we're all speaking English, and that so many people around the world speak English as a first or second language. Powerful cities that have this overwhelming influence. Washington, D.C., New York City, the center of trade and political power in the earth today. And, and, and <laughs> unfortunately, other influences too, right? And that's the point. That is what we're supposed to learn from this. Because powerful cities influence for good, and they influence for bad. So we, we do, we have these cities in history. And so it's important to think about Babylon being one of these cities. It's not the dusty remains of ancient Babylon. It's not even ancient Babylon in its height. It was, by comparison to other empires, a relatively small region. This is the Babylon that sits on top all the peoples and nations and truth of the world. This is that great city. So, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich with the abundance of their luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For, for her sins have reached the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works in the cup she has mixed and it's double for her. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I stood as a queen, I am no widow, 
I will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning, famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges. There is a lot in this passage. And it's so hard in many ways to think of a city being so dominant and so powerful. And yet, as we just discussed, there's been so many cities that have. At its height, London, you know, the London economic system of the, the, the British Empire controlled 70% of the world's trade directly. And 30% indirectly. It just controlled it all. And if you wanted to trade, the central place to trade was through that London Stock Exchange, through that whole financial system. And where is it now? It's a little bit in London, it's a little bit in Berlin, it's a little bit in Paris, but we said it earlier, today it's New York City. So it remains a threat. And then the political power down the road in Washington, D.C. These are powerful cities, and they do control global economics and trading. All the interaction is local. Has there ever been a time when we have the kind of wealth that we see in individuals today? Think about some of the super rich there's a time when we used to say Bill Gates was the richest man on earth, right? He's still pretty rich. But then, um, heck, Bezos, but even before that, the, the other Plato guy, I forget his name, good friend with Bill Gates. Huh? Buffett. For his time, Bezos, now, Elon Musk. This kind of wealth is and that's not even including all the small guys that only have a few billion dollars of wealth. Right? And, and you think about that level of wealth. There, I don't know if there's been a time in which we've experienced that level of wealth by so few individuals. Maybe an argument can be made in the, the, the 1900s, early 1900s, Period of the Roger Ballin and that wealth fell as well. But we're talking about globally powerful individuals that have so much money they can literally affect the change of whatever they want in the world. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation sent billions of dollars into third world countries and all kinds of programs, and they're accountable. actually done some uh, significant damage in parts of the world. So Babylon gives rise to all this <coughs> wealth for these merchants, and the goal is to maintain that wealth, to maintain those trading agreements and alliances and partnerships. And yet in the middle of all this, Babylon has Quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? You never will find a more wretched hive of scum and villain. Right? This is 
that city and where devils inhabit? I mean, did, did this, is this worth hoping that his ideas are full? I mean, just, you know, every foul creature and bird coming out of the ground almost in this city. This city, this end time Babylon, filled with wickedness. Every evil and distortion known to man. Do we sometimes think we might be living in that place? When we see some of the things that are happening in our community, and certainly we get we get a magnifying glass through the media on different issues different places. And everybody makes money by making us read all of this and get riled up about these issues and topics. But they are really taking place in our community. Some of these things, I think, are very active and alive in our community. And we can see the rise, we're witnessing the increase of Babylonian-type things all around us. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because the scripture I just read here, in verse 4, it, it sounds so strange, because how is this happening? So you have this terrible city filled with all this crime, but this wealth, and, and everything that is against God, and yet there are God's people living within this city. How does that happen? How does a city that is so evil still contain God's people that he's giving a warning to to come out lest you be partakers of their sin? Has our values about what's right and what's wrong changed? I don't feel like that's the case. Marriage to me is still between one man and one woman, right? We didn't change. That's been the way it's been for human civilization. Last five minutes, it's now this other thing. Pick whatever you want, I guess. We didn't change. But society is changing around us. And it's really interesting because this isn't the first time that it's, that it's happened. As we'll see, there's another city. Another city that was good and then became a Babylon. Fallen. And it's interesting there's always been a prophetic element to this idea that Babylon is stolen touch, right? Babylon the Great has fallen and fallen. And I'm wondering if that's also to do with its maybe more moral condition and then falling into sin and then falling into God's judgment when the sin returns. But think about our experience. I can't remember what it was. We were talking about it. Something on the news uh, that I read. And it, 
it reminded me not long after I had moved to the to the states. I remember there being a big news story. Of, yeah, in Texas, eliminating the laws on sodomy. So this is back in the And it hadn't been enforced for a while, and it started. And you know what sodomy laws are, right? Basically, outlawing homosexuality. Well, so they they got rid of that. And they just let people do whatever they want in the privacy of their own home. Just not make all these people criminals. You know, they want to just love one another, and it's it's none of our business. Live and let live. So where are we today? It starts the process, doesn't it? It starts to unravel the, the, the morals of a society. And we've seen this in our own experience, and we saw it in the nation of Israel, in the holy city, in Jerusalem, where the temple of God was, where they had the law of God given to them, where God was present, in the temple, and yet they went this way. In Isaiah chapter 1, the first chapter of Isaiah, the first message that Isaiah is giving to the people, he says in verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. It was full of justice. It wasn't perfect. But God is saying it was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it. Righteousness lived there. It was like a residence. It was part of the, the fabric of the city. But now, murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious. Your companions are thieves. And everyone loves the bride follows after the rich. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the church of the widow come before them. So we have quite the opposite. Right? We have this faithful city, and now it's come, it's fallen, and it's become the opposite. And we have the opposite in society today. We have children being preyed on by deliberate forces to destroy their bodies, to destroy any future life and potential that they have for relationship in the way in which God designed them to be. How did we get from 1998 and removing the sodomy laws to this? What's the outcome? Destruction of the innocent. Attacking these innocent lives. Undermining life itself. Conspiring together to do this to the innocent. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, rid myself of my adversaries. 
take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. Thoroughly purge away your breath. Take away all your alloys. I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the place of joy. Very different place in Jerusalem. A very different place in Jerusalem than Babylon. God remembers his graciousness. He remembers his promise. He remembers his love for that city. But he still brings his judgment first. Still brings justice. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her punishments with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terrible trees which he has desired. They shall be embarrassed because of the garden. Because places that they worship against God, the practices that they engage in. For you shall be as a terrible tree, excuse me, shade, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as timber, and the worst ever as salt. Both will burn together, and no one will quench them. Zion will be redeemed. Jerusalem will be redeemed. see, they kind of deserve the same fate as, as Babylon, don't they? But God is going to be specific and purge out of that city, purge out all that wickedness. Leave it perfect. Bring it back to being perfect. Babylon will not have that. Babylon's fate is if we go back to Revelation chapter 18 and verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication lived luxuriously with her, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance, because they don't want to get involved. They don't want to swoop in and try and rescue this city. They don't want to try and save it because they know the power that is bringing this judgment on this city. They say, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. Why are they weeping and mourning? What they want. The selfishness and the, the self-centeredness, everything about this is all about their own personal wealth and gain. They didn't even love this city. They just loved what it gave them. <laughs> Utterly corrupt, aren't they? These merchants. For no one buys their merchandise from them. Merchandise of gold and silver precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood and every kind of object of ivory, every 
kind of object is made of precious wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and incense and fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and cattle. The body economic system, the whole marketplace is gone in one day, destroyed, and never will rise again. It's over. That is going to be a good day. You know, you might think, well, we certainly prayed in all of these things. Uh, we, can, we can go on Amazon, right? It might be the electronic Babylon. I don't know. And we can go and we can buy all of these things. I could go do that right now during this sermon and buy something. And some of it might get delivered today. How crazy is that? But the bodies and souls of men. Can we buy that on might not realize that slavery today is higher than at any time in the history of mankind. There's more people enslaved than there ever was in the African slave trade. The cost of slavery is lower per slave than there ever has been in the history of mankind. This is terrible. Mankind has not learned any lessons from slavery. And we all benefit from it. our clothing and our electronic devices and our chairs and tables and wherever else. Uh, according to antislavery.org, there are over 40 million people estimated to be trapped in what is called cotton slavery. 40 million. One in four of them are children and almost three quarters of them, 71 percent, are women. great city that sits on top of literally the food chain, sits on top of its entire economic system, a global economic system, where you can buy and sell anything you want as long as you follow the rules. As long as you're not following God's way. We're honest. It feels like we're living in Babylon. We're living in the suburbs of Babylon, and, and maybe it doesn't really matter where it's centered, because it's global, right? And there's these trading places. It's called the city in London. It's the New York Stock Exchange. It's, uh, I forget the one in 
building. But these are the heights of this whole economic system. Verse 14, it says, The fruit that your soul longs for, well, is gone from from you because of Babylon's destruction. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance to feel her, her torment, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, that great restaurant that we would always go and meet at, that great you know, theater that we would watch fantastic shows and, 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 and those great arenas where we would watch the giants of our sports games play. All of this great wealth and luxury and pleasure is gone. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, this great city! in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her, by her wealth. In one hour, she was made desolate. Not even in one day. <laughs> in one hour, this is, is ended. This, this is a global system. Think about this for a second. You know, the description is around a city, and a, a, I'm not trying to take away from that, but if it's a global city, right, and it sits upon the circle of the earth and it's in, in all of these trading areas around the world, then wherever this trading network operates also has to be put out of business. What? Remember 9-11, right, when the Twin Towers were hit and all the other things that took place, and the economic systems of the world were shut down, right? The whole thing has to be shut down all the way around the world to control and minimize the risk. It's a global system. I really think it's a global system. So all these rich and powerful merchants, they are mourning, sorry to see their source of wealth And then the wealth that they have, and the financial system or whatever, I mean, that's gone too. How do you get to all of your electronic currency when it's all wiped out? You don't have, you know, the box of gold in the, in the de deserted desert island somewhere. And even if you did, nobody cares because you can't sell gold. It just said, you cannot even sell gold. The most precious things that we have. So the whole world and all of these merchants, they mourn and cry for this great city. And then what happens? Saints say, Hallelujah. There's a party about ready to take place. In chapter 20, it says, Rejoice 
over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Because inside of her is the blood of the prophets and the saints and all those that she has murdered. It says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down, shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists and musicians and flautists and trumpeters it shall not be heard in you anymore. No more celebrations, no more parties, no more fun in that place. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were given, uh, uh, for your merchants were the great men of the earth to buy your sorceries, all the nations with the sea. Again, it's global, right? And deceived into these trading relationships and deceived into these partnerships that deceived into using some of your people as slaves to make goods for the rich people of the earth. We know from history that Babylon, original Babylon, was eventually destroyed. She was occupied by the, the Persians. Later, Alexander the Great, as he died in, in, in the remnants of Babylon, overwhelmed and taken away. And, and, and you can go to that place today, and there is no parties anymore in Babylon. It's a very desert town. There's nothing there. Reforming, growing, more and more powerful. I didn't have time to put together uh, a lot of the research today for this, but there there is growing evidence to show that some of the changes that were made during the COVID pandemic, contracts are now being made permanent in the financial system. For example, the, the biggest one, if you'll remember. Uh, the truckers' protests in Alberta, Canada, right? What shut that down? Financial system shut that down. They didn't have to go in there with riot police. I mean, they cleared it out eventually, but there wasn't big fighting in the street and, you know, rebellion and gunfights as this. They, all of their financial support was taken. All of those dollars that were donated to people from around the world were frozen, stopped going to the bank accounts. And some of those financial changes have been made permanent. So, what are we to do? To go against the power of this economic system, this great city, just above all the nations. That's the only way this city is going away. Because apparently she was beat down once before and is back and needs to be beat down again. 
so. He comes in verse 24 for the ultimate real reason. Or not real, but the, the most powerful reason perhaps of why she was destroyed. Because with all of her corruption, with all of her deception around the world, this great city is guilty of destroying the image of Beautiful saints of God, the prophets and the saints. It says, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints, and of all who were slain by sword. Let me take this secret place where she was hiding all the bodies of those that would not follow Babylon and The similarity between Babylon. Jerusalem pops out in this verse again. This evil, wicked woman, Babylon, murdered the saints of God, but she wasn't first. Jerusalem was. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus is mourning over the city and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Gathered her brood under her wings, but you would not. You were not ready. See, your house is left you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Or in another way. Then they will say, Here is God. Then they will finally see that He is the King. He's not one of a long line of man made kings and rulers and powerful merchants and economic systems that trades in the lives and souls of men and destroys itself. They will see that He is the true. Revelation chapter 19, it says, after all these things, after all of this destruction has come on Babylon, after this economic system, after this murderous system, after this anti-God system has been destroyed and is being destroyed, it says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of her saints shed by her. And again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude responding to the call for praise. And as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah. 
for the Lord God's omnipotent judgment. I want to be in that party. Who wants to be in that party? Amen. Where we can praise God and see His final work on the earth. Where we can see the justice that He's going to bring. And the reconciliation and the restoration and the healing for all the people and nations that will receive Christ. And then He eliminates that corrupt system that mankind is in. forward here in the interest of time. In verse, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head were many names. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, but you are not. Clothed in fine linen, you the saints, and the armies of heaven. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, 